But it's really good to be able to be with you and to share God's word this morning. And maybe you're thinking, well, Easter's over. And uh, I was talking to a teacher not long ago and saying he was saying it's only four weeks and four days to half term and then four weeks and four days to the summer holidays. Uh, and maybe you're a bit like that. You're looking ahead. You think, well, bank holiday next. And that's another day off. And then half term coming up and uh, maybe away with the family. And, and then the summer holidays, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? It's so easy to move on from Easter. But I want us to stay here because today is actually Easter day. And if you realise that, but if we were in Ukraine, we'd be celebrating Easter today. I have a different calendar. And I remember uh, many years ago, I had the privilege of visiting Romania when Ceausescu was still uh, in charge in those days, a communist regime, uh, and the Christians facing uh, very difficult days, or everyone facing very difficult days. And I remember um, speaking to someone, uh, we were there visiting churches and uh, sharing God's word, speaking to someone who was translating for us, and he said, he said, the difference between the East and the West, he said, in the West, Easter is a yearly event. But here in the East, Easter is a daily experience. Is it a yearly event for you or is it a daily experience? Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on uh, the book of John, he gets to chapter 20 and his title for that chapter uh, in the book is The Dawning of a New Day. The resurrection is a dawning of a new day. It changes everything. I was listening to someone else being interviewed just uh, earlier this morning. And um, uh, it was an Australian interviewing an Australian. And he said exactly that. Uh, it's, it, the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. So what I want us to do this morning is stay on the resurrection. Think about what happened next. And uh, uh, after Jesus rose from the dead and really look at John chapter 20 and John chapter 21 and look at three reactions and then ask four questions, three reactions and four questions. So let's think about these reactions first of all and really just covering what happens in chapter 20. It begins with Mary Magdalene, who had been one of those people who had been changed by Jesus and following Jesus, and she goes with her friend Salome uh, with some spices to go and anoint the body. Now, I don't quite know what they were thinking because it says as they were on the way, they were discussing how to how to get into the tomb because the tomb where Jesus had been laid, a big stone had been rolled in front of it. How were they going to get in? How are these two women going there early on that Sunday morning going to get into the tomb? Not sure they'd really thought about that. But imagine the shock when they arrived there to find that the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. And uh, let's think, first of all, about Mary's reaction. And it's all there in chapter 20. You read through it. First of all, to, to, to Simon, Peter and John, uh, it says that she arrived. So chapter 20 and verse 1, if you want to follow it, early on the first day, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been uh, been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That's John. Uh, John doesn't name himself much. He's very humble about that, as it were. He's often referred to the other disciple. Comes running to Simon Peter and to John and said, they've taken the Lord 
out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And then a bit later on in the chapter, uh, she's there. Um, we'll think about what happens next after that. But she's back there and she she sees in the tomb these angels. And the angels say to her, why are you crying? And she says, verse 13, uh, verse 13, they asked her, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken away my, taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. And then a few verses on from that, we get to, uh, Jesus speak, uh, Mary speaking to the gardener, when she thinks it's the gardener, it's actually Jesus who has appeared and says to him, uh, verse 15, says to him, uh, thinking he was a gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. She, her reaction is someone's stolen the body. Someone's taken the body. And that's many people's reaction today, they, or their explanation as they explain away the resurrection. Someone has taken the body. Then let's think about Peter's reaction for a moment. Remember Peter, if you go back in John's Gospel, you see that Peter is someone who had denied the Lord. I want nothing to do with him. Do you remember sitting around the fire and uh, people saying, oh, weren't, weren't you one of his followers? Weren't you with him? And he denied the Lord. He probably never planned to go to the grave. I think he was probably at home sulking or just thinking, what have I done? But yet Mary comes and um, comes to him and to John, says what's happened. So, so off they go to the tomb. John, uh, who's the younger of the two, he gets there first. Um, and uh, then Peter eventually arrives. And have a look in verse 6 of chapter 20. Simon Peter, who was behind him, probably an older man, a little bit slower, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around uh, Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. So we looked around. What did he see? A pile of cloths folded up, carefully folded and neatly put away, as it were, there in the tomb. I think it would have been a, one of a reaction of confusion. What's going on here? What are these folded cloths, grave clothes doing? What's going on? When I was young, uh, and some of you may remember this, Mars bars used to be wrapped up rather than sealed. Some of you remember that? And uh, they would be wrapped up. And uh, let me tell you, not that I ever did it, but if you had wanted to steal a Mars bar, you would not go into the shop and see the Mars bar and take the Mars bar and carefully unwrap the wrapper, take the Mars bar, carefully fold the wrapper back up and put it back in the counter there and go off with the Mars bar. You wouldn't do that. That is not how you steal something. You'd be in and grab it and out. Peter's confused. What's gone on here? Mary is saying someone's taken the body. Peter's saying no one's taken the body. That's not what's happened. For Mary, her mind was made up. For Peter... His mind was confused. And a few verses on, it says that the disciples went back to their homes. He goes home. What's going on? 
goes home confused. And maybe that's your reaction to the resurrection this morning. Just confused by it all. Did it really happen? Didn't it happen? What's going on? How do we explain it? One of confusion. So there's Mary's reaction. Someone has taken the body. There's Peter's reaction. No one's taken the body and confused. And then we come to John. John is this other disciple named here in the chapter and it's mentioned, the other disciple in verse 2, the other disciple in verse 8. Uh, he arrives first, uh, probably because he's the younger man, a bit faster, gets there first, but he doesn't go in. He's um, Maybe he's not seen death before and scared to go in, so, so waits there at the door. But eventually Peter comes and Peter goes in and uh, so on, and then John follows him in. He goes in, and what does he see? Well, he actually saw exactly the same with the others, because they all saw the same thing. But what it actually says in verse 8, it says he saw and believed. He saw and believed. A better translation of that might be he understood and believed. If you go through this chapter of John and you've got the, the word see, which we use in English lots of times. Um, but actually there's different Greek words from uh, what I've read and what I can understand. Um, and the word here that it uses of John, it doesn't seem to say that he saw an empty tomb and believed. It seems to say that he understood what had happened and believed. What did he understand? He understood everything that Jesus had been saying. If you go back through the Gospels, and you can see it very well in Mark's Gospel in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, three times Jesus says that he must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again. That's the reason that Jesus came, to suffer and be rejected, to be killed, and to rise again. That's the work that he came to do. The cross, which we remember on Good Friday. The place where he died for sin, but not the sin, not his sin. Our sin, our wrongdoing, was laid upon him. He had to suffer and be rejected and be killed. The cross, the sacrifice for, for my wrongdoing that I might be forgiven. My sin laid on him. And then the resurrection three days later. Jesus has risen from the dead. He said he must do that three times. Suffer, be rejected, be killed and rise again. Jesus, back from the dead, risen again. The price of our sin paid for by Jesus. The proof that this sacrifice was acceptable before God. Death conquered as he rose from the dead. And if you were here last Sunday evening, Joseph, I think it was Sunday evening, Joseph was speaking about, he was raised for our justification. Because of the cross and because of the resurrection, the way to God is opened. These three people, uh, Mary and Peter and John, 
they all saw the same thing, but in that first moment they experienced different or they had different conclusions. Mary, she saw it with her eyes, but, but didn't believe it. Peter, analysing what he saw, but, but just remained confused. John understood and believed. That was their initial reactions, but it wasn't their final reactions. Because the resurrection changes everything. A new day has dawned. And actually, if we look here in the chapter, we see Mary one moment in grief, because that's how she came. But the next moment, joy, as she realizes that Jesus is alive. Peter, the one who had denied the Lord and was so troubled probably by what he'd done, the one who'd come to the grave, looked in there, confused by what he saw, you go forward a little bit, and what you find in uh, the book of Acts, you find this Peter boldly preaching that Jesus has risen from the dead. John, the one who saw and believed, uh, writes this account of all that's happened. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing that you might have life. And not only did he write this account, but he wrote that that marvellous book of Revelation, that vision uh, of Jesus, uh, all changed by the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. A new day has dawned. And then in this chapter, in the following verses, we see Jesus appearing to all of the disciples. The first time he comes, uh, well, Luke tells us Peter's there, um, but we know that Thomas isn't there. So that's the first time he appears. And then uh, a week later, he appears again. And on that occasion, Thomas is there. And um, uh, uh, Thomas, the one who said, look, unless I put my hands in the, those holes, my, my fingers in the holes of this hand, I will not believe. But actually, there's no record that he ever did that. But he is changed when he realizes and he says, my Lord and my God. And uh, so those, those reactions and lives which are changed by the resurrection. And in some ways, uh, all that's really by way of introduction. It's good to think about the resurrection that Jesus has risen from the dead and think about our reaction to do it. But in some ways, that's really by uh, a way of introduction. The resurrection changes everything. I was in a prayer meeting early, earlier in the week online And somebody prayed, it's not just Easter for a day. It's not just Easter for a day. Sin and death is defeated. The way back to God is opened up. We have everything that we need for life and for godliness because that power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. And we can be sure that one day that we will be raised with him. And that brings me to the the first of my four questions. And the question for you is this, very simply, do you believe it? Do you believe it? John tells us why he wrote this gospel account. He says there in verse 30, Jesus did many other miracles and miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book. There's a load that are recorded, but so many others that aren't recorded. But these are written that you might believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. It's a good question to ask ourselves this morning. Do I really believe that? A few weeks ago, I was speaking uh, in in here at YPF on a Friday night, and they'd given me the title of, uh, uh, a very easy title of, Does God Exist? I think it was. And um, I didn't just start with the Bible, but just looking at some of the evidence around. And one of the things I said to the young people there on that night, I said, well, I can present you evidence, but you must decide. You've got to look at this evidence and decide what you do with it. John's Gospel is a book full of evidence. Evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is uh, the Christ, the promised one. He is the man who is God. His words declared that. That's exactly what he said. And the works that he did demonstrated that. John gives us this evidence that Jesus is the one who came to bring life. To bring life. Uh, life with God. And Jesus is the one who is the only way back to God. And uh, there in John 14, uh, John records the words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John, as it were, presents his evidence, saying that these things are written that you might believe, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that believing in him might have life in his name. He tells us he is the Christ, the promised one. He tells us that he's the son of God, God in a body, walking on this earth. He tells us that we need to believe. A response is required. I can't do do that for you. I can reason and persuade and show and share God's word. But you must decide what you do with the evidence. Each one of us is accountable to God as to what we've done with this revelation of Jesus Christ. A response is required. He's the Christ, the Son of God, uh, that we, we need to believe. And that believing is the way to life. Life with a capital L. A new life. In Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I remember the day when I first trusted in Christ and understood what he had done for me, and I needed to turn from that and trust in him. And I remember just knowing that and experiencing that new life. That's what is on offer. That's why Jesus wrote that we might have this new life in Christ. This, this life, it's a new life. It's an abundant life. Uh, Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it, have it to the full, abundantly. And it's eternal life. And again, all the way through John's Gospel, Jesus speaks of this eternal life, everlasting life, life with God. It's what that uh, various people asked him about as they, uh, uh, it's what the rich young ruler said, you know, what have I got to do to have eternal life? It's what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus uh, about when he came in the night. These are written 
that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believing you might have life in his name. Let me ask you, do you, do you have that life? Do you believe it? Not just believing the, the abstract facts, as it were. They're not just facts to be affirmed. But a response is required. Acknowledging that Jesus is who he says he is. God become man, the promised one. Acknowledging that we need him, that our lives are in a mess and that without him, we're, we're hopeless. And the only way we can be forgiven is in trusting him. Turning from that sin and trusting in Christ. There's no other way. So that's my first question. Do you believe it? I think it's possible to be coming along to church for years or growing up in a home where you go along to church and and to have not really asked ourselves, um, do I believe it? Have I turned from my sin? And am I trusting in Christ? If you've never done that, I'd urge you to, to turn from that sin, to call out to God, to trust in him and to enjoy his forgiveness and his peace and his help and his hope in life. Well, that's the first question. And the remaining three questions really come from chapter 21. And they come from Peter because they're really questions that are asked of Peter. But they equally apply to us. You see, if we didn't have the Bible, uh, sorry, if we didn't have chapter 21 of John's gospel, we might be left wondering what happened. Why is someone who has messed up so badly denied the one he'd followed for three years, denied him not just once or twice, but three times. Why is somebody who's messed up so badly so prominent when you get to the book of Acts? He's one of the key characters in there. You find him standing up and boldly preaching the risen Jesus. What's happened? Without 21, we, 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 we might be left wondering. But John 21 tells us what's happened. And you can read it through, read the account. Peter comes along and says, let's go fishing. After all, he was a fisherman, whether it was right or wrong. Interesting question, but not what we're considering now. And he said, come on, let's go fishing. So off they go out into the night uh, to catch fish. They spent the whole night fish, fishing. And what do they catch? Nothing. Not a good night of fishing. And then Jesus appears uh, uh, by the sea, they don't realise it's him, and ask them the question, have you got any fish? And uh, might consider it a strange question to ask fishermen, and maybe he knows the answer to, to that, uh, because they say, well, no, we haven't. And then he tells them to put the nets out on the other side of the boat. Uh, they do that, and the nets are filled up with fish. A miraculous event, as the nets are full of fish and don't break. John, in that moment, realises who this is. He tells the others, it's the Lord, it's Jesus. Peter jumps in the sea, about 100 metres from the edge, and he heads for shore. Not quite sure why he jumped in, but that's what he did. The others bring the boat back. Uh, Peter then helps them with all the fish. They count the fish. It tells us 153, interesting number. And then Jesus invites them to come and join him around a fire for breakfast. He's already got some fish prepared for them. And he invites them to join them 
for breakfast. What a wonderful invitation. Come and dine. I wonder what Peter was thinking in that moment. He knew it was Jesus because he'd been there, he'd seen him. This was the third time he'd appeared to them, it says in verse 14. But I wonder if he was recalling another fire that he sat around not that many nights ago. The place where he denied the Lord. I wonder if he was thinking, what's he going to say? What's going to happen to me? Does that include me? Am I wanted? Uh, What hope is there for me? So they had their breakfast together there by the sea. And when, when they'd finished, Jesus speaks to Simon or Simon Peter, as he's uh, described as uh, in this chapter. So Jesus speaks to Simon and asks him these three questions. The first one, which he asks three times in verse 15 and 16 and 17, he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times he had denied the Lord. And three times he's given the opportunity to publicly, that's who denied the Lord publicly, now he has three opportunities to declare his love publicly in some ways in front of the others. Jesus says to him, do you love me more than these? Verse 15, do you love me more than these? What did he mean by that? Well, he could have meant, Peter, do you, lovely, do you love me more than you love these other men? Do you love me more than these? He could have meant, do you love me more than you love these things? Your boat, your business, uh, the nets, the fish? Or he could have meant, do you love me more than these others loved me as you claimed? I think it's probably that one. Do you remember what Peter had done? He had boasted of his love. In John 13, he says, I will lay down my life for you. I love you more than any of the others. I will lay down my life for you. What a brave boast. Uh, In Matthew 26, he says, even if everyone falls away on account of you, I won't. I'll be there. And Jesus is asking, do you love me? Do you love me as you say you do? Three times he asks the question and three times Jesus replies. The last time, the third time, uh, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, You know all things. You know that I love you. There's so much more we could say, but my question is simple, and it's a question I ask myself. Do I really love Jesus? Do I really love him? So often we love other things more. We love ourselves. We love our possessions. We love the truth and the Bible. We love the, our service for God and all that we do. But do we really love 
Jesus. He loves us. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for his enemies out of love for sinners such as us. He loves us and he wants us to love him, to enjoy that relationship with him, to spend time with him. So that's the first question, and I think a good question to ask ourselves daily. Do I love him? And how do I show that love for him? The second question, uh, you see it in verses 18 and 19, and it comes over as a bit more of an imperative, but I'm going to turn it into a question. He says, will you follow me? Will you follow me? Verses 18 and 19. Peter has told Jesus, he said to him, feed my sheep. And then he says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger and dressed yourself and went, went, where, uh, uh, went where you wanted, but, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. I don't know exactly what that means. But it's interesting that it says, um, it says he indicated the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he says, follow me. This death and glory go together. And we see that in Jesus. Suffering, the way of suffering and glory go together. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. The first time Peter had heard that, back in Mark chapter 8, do you know what the reaction of of Peter was to Jesus when he said that? He rebukes him and says, no way, not like that. He didn't understand it. You get the same reaction in Mark chapter 9 of the disciples uh, just after he said it, they're walking along the road arguing about who's the greatest. They hadn't understood it. And then you get the same with James and John in Mark chapter 10. He says the same thing again. And uh, they start talking to each other about, can we sit on either side when you come into your kingdom? Can we be there with you? They didn't get it. To follow Jesus is to walk the path of suffering and to go the way of the cross. So my question is this to to myself and to you. Am I really following Jesus? Do I understand what it means to deny myself and take up my cross? There's a verse that I'm often troubled by, which is 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. Some of you will probably know it. It says this. They that live godly lives will suffer persecution. And the question I often ask myself, if I'm not suffering some kind of persecution, Am I living a godly life? Interesting thing to discuss. We, we, we face very little of persecution or the type of persecution that others face. But it is a question I do ask myself. Uh, what exactly does that mean to follow Christ? When you look at Peter, you look back in his life and all that happened and it was clear that he didn't understand. But then when you go forward in life, you see that he grasped it. You see that he followed Jesus. You see that he's prepared to suffer for him. 
And I think it comes out very much so in that uh, one of my favourite books in the Bible, which I've preached on often, 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, Peter writes of uh, chapter 1 and verse 7, of faith being tested by fire. And then later on in the book, in chapter 4, he says, don't think it's strange when fiery trials come. So the second question, or it's question number three, but the second of these three, uh, will you follow me? Are we following Jesus? Am I following Jesus? And then the final question, let me read to you verses 20 and 22. Peter turned and saw that, that the disciple who Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? What about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. So the third question after, do you love me? Will you follow me? What's that got to do with you? What's John got to do with you, Peter? Peter sees John, what about him? Does he get a share of the suffering as well? But Jesus says, what does that matter to you? You follow me. The Christian life is often described as a race. I don't know what kind of race you think it is. Uh, uh, Is it a sprint? Well, it's not a sprint, is it? It's not the 100 metre sprint. Uh, Is it more like a marathon Uh, and just that endurance that's needed? I think as I was thinking about this, it's more like the steeplechase. And I don't know if you know the steeplechase um, at the Olympics, uh, 3,000 metres, fairly long, with all sorts of obstacles and hurdles and water to be overcome on the way. And uh, I think it's a little bit like that. And, you know, as we run a race or, or think about the hurdles, as it were, you're running along and the hurdles come. What we must not do is start looking down. There's, oh, his hurdles are different than mine. Oh, that hurdle looks higher. I don't like the way he's running it and jumping over the hurdles. And we can do that. We can spend so much time thinking about other people and, dare I say, passing judgment on them rather than uh, saying, what's that got to do with us? Will I follow Jesus? So often we look at others' lives and are more concerned about the way they do things or don't things. It's even possible to sit and listen to a sermon and think about how it applies to the person sitting next to us or the person at the other side of the church. Or we hear something and think, they need to hear that. But what about me? Jesus' reply was, what's that got to do with you? So my three questions, do you love me? Will you follow me? And what is that to you? They're good questions to ask, not just once, but regularly. We can ask ourselves, how am I going to express my love for Jesus today? We can ask ourselves, what am I going to do today to try and follow in his steps and go his way? And we can ask ourselves, which is more important to me today? What Jesus expects of me or what I expect of others. Just think for a moment 
What if the resurrection hadn't happened? No day would have dawned. There'd be no offer of a new life, life with Christ, no offer of a new beginning. There'd be no genuine forgiveness. There'd be no true peace. There'd be no lasting joy. There'd be no hope whatsoever. There'd be no Gospel of John. He'd have had nothing worth writing about. There'd be no book of Peter with all the hope that it offers. But we praise the Lord this morning that the resurrection happened and the new day has dawned and everything has changed. Let me just finish by reading the words from which Peter wrote uh, from 1 Peter 5 uh, before we sing our final song. Listen to these words which Peter wrote. I think they're so encouraging. Uh, challenging but encouraging. Uh, humble yourselves, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you had suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen.